The industry responds to the FAA's proposed rules for development of advanced air mobility vehicles and integrating AAM into the nation's airspace. From the National Business Aviation Association, this is Flight Plan, brought to you by Varion, formerly ATP. I'm Rob Finfrock with your trusted source for the very latest business aviation news and information. On August 15th, NBAA joined with five other industry associations in submitting comments on the FAA's Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, or NPRM, on the operation of powered lift vehicles in the national airspace system. Key to this effort is the Special Federal Aviation Regulation, or SFAR, for AAM pilot certification and operating rules. AAM stakeholders have anticipated that guidance for some time to facilitate the safe, timely, and successful integration of AAM into the NAS. The SFAR is necessary because the FAA transitioned how they were certifying these aircraft from airplanes, which already had rules for commercial operations and pilot training and licensing. Those rules already exist for airplanes, as everyone understands. When we transition from these being classified as airplanes to powered lift, similar rules don't exist for powered lift aircraft. Greg Bowles is head of government and regulatory affairs for Joby. It actually opened up a huge opportunity to kind of look and say, hey, powered lift aircraft have the benefits of fixed wing aircraft and the benefits of vertical flight aircraft. And how do we best take advantage of that? Also joining me today is Michael Romanowski, head of government affairs at Archer, who notes the SFAR is actually one of two key AAM-related documents released by the FAA this year, along with its concept of operations version 2.0. The thing that is powerful from that is they help solidify something we as an industry were trying to do easily for the last year, which was to get us out of the mindset of advanced air mobility is the Jetsons and counter that with the hard, true reality that we can do what we're doing today with the existing technology, with the existing national airspace system. And so in the CONOPS 2.0, this was the first time that the FAA in a cross-agency document recognized that we as an industry can fully use and leverage the existing national airspace system to accomplish this goal. And they laid that out very clearly in the CONOPS, and then they followed that up in the uh, integrated plan. The second thing that they did with that integrated plan that was very helpful was at the end of it, they give schedule templates, and they give, in effect, a checklist of all the considerations that go into initial operations so that that helps guide us all and guide the FAA as we're having discussions about the hardcore implementation of of our new routes and operations over the course of the next year or two. My third guest is Paul McDuffie, Senior Principal for Airspace Integration at Supernal and Vice Chair of NBAA's Emerging Technologies Committee that, in consultation with NBAA's AAM Roundtable, guided the association's response to the SFAR. I think really for the first time, the SFAR begins to address the kinds of issues that are going to be important to the entire industry. When we consider what it's going to take to get to a point where we have effective entry into service by these vehicles, so much of the activity, and rightly so, has been spent on, you know, determining the path to certifying the aircraft, the design, the testing, the evaluation of the of the various vehicles, but not an awful lot of attention spent on figuring out the correct operational path to actually get these things in the air 
operating them to a certain degree routinely and allowing businesses to scale going forward. So I think the SFAR, what it does is it, it certainly brings attention to long-standing regulations that would certainly impact entry into service by our industry participants and uh, kind of kind of gets us to a place where we can gather the appropriate amount of data, make modifications to the existing rule set as necessary, and move on. So it's important. It is really shifting the focus away from the, the kinds of things that you would expect very early in our industry development and looking now down toward the road where we actually begin to operationalize these vehicles. But while the NPRM seems generally to be a good start toward that goal, NBAA and other industry stakeholders did have some reservations about certain aspects of the agency's approach. And we'll get into those following this word from our sponsor. Take your aviation operations to new heights. Introducing Varion, formerly known as ATP, your ultimate partner in achieving maximum aircraft uptime. At Varion, we understand the challenges faced by everyone in aviation. Our industry-leading technology solutions revolutionize aircraft management, so there's no more waiting, no more wondering, and no more wasted effort. Get real-time visibility of your maintenance, inventory, operations, and regulatory data right at your fingertips with an easy-to-use system. Backed by a team of experts with deep aviation knowledge offering 24-7, 365 support. After 50 years in the business, we have built a growing reputation for getting our customers more aircraft uptime. That's why thousands of aircraft operators worldwide have already discovered the power of Varion. Say goodbye to downtime and hello to increased efficiency and profitability. Visit Varion.com to learn more. Varion, let's get you more uptime. We're back now with Mike Romanowski, Greg Bowles, and Paul McDuffie, and our discussion about the industry's recent response to the FAA's proposed rulemaking on integration of AAM into the national airspace system. Paul, as was mentioned earlier, one key aspect of the SFAR is this powered lift category for aircraft. The FAA has called for a dedicated powered lift rating for pilots, while the industry has recommended type rating for individual AAM vehicles, similar to what we have now for existing aircraft. So there is a bit of a disconnect there. Yeah, it's a bit of a regulatory conundrum. A couple of years ago, a group came together to take a look at potential paths to effectively identifying and satisfying the regulatory concerns as it relates to the certification of pilots. And and one of the things that did come up was the most expeditious path we thought was and is looking at the prospects of a type rating for each of the individual aircraft. Why a type rating? Well, there are such a wide variety of vehicle configurations, performance, you know, they're like snowflakes, really no two of them are identical. And it would make it very, very difficult for for the FAA, at least at the present time, without sufficient data to back it up, to establish a class rating, for example, that currently exists for rotorcraft, airplanes, etc. So the thought was that using the type rating path with all of the attached requirements to that was probably the best and most effective way to get the pilots appropriately certified in the most expeditious path. The understanding is that with a lack of available aircraft, with the lack of available simulators, the quickest way to building that initial cadre of pilots was to go with the individual type rating, where the training programs could be crafted by the OEMs, approved by a a flight standards board, and then 
initiated through existing training centers, 141, 142 operations, OEMs, etc. So it does make sense given the current situation and the nascency of our industry. And speaking of training, Greg, another industry concern with the SFAR is the proposed requirement for dual controls in AAM vehicles. Why is that a point of contention? When we look at traditional aircraft, we're familiar with the ways we train. Sometimes we use simulation, sometimes we use on-aircraft flight training. And so I think the subtlety here is that there's a set of regulations on the rule books today with FA that says if you're going to do flight training in an aircraft, there needs to be a set of controls available to the instructor when flight training is happening on the aircraft. Now, there are paths for aircraft. Business jet community knows this really well, and the existing airline community knows this really well. We frequently will train folks to get their type rating in simulation when we have highly capable simulators. And when we do that training, it's actually a better environment for the training courses and, and lets you present information in more thorough ways. So you can distill that information and, and understand it better and, and repeat and, and execute missions you might not otherwise fly in the actual environment. And so simulation, when it's available, has always been the priority. When a simulator is available, everyone would agree that's a much higher path for high quality flight training. And so in this industry, you'll see something similar. What you'll find is that companies that are designing their aircraft with one set of controls are anticipating the use of high quality training through simulation. And then the FA does historically allow checking to happen in a set in an aircraft with one set of controls. And so, in fact, there's some really interesting stories. There are some cockpits out there that only have one seat, and the FA will allow flight checking to occur in those aircraft, and the, the check airmen will be on the ground watching the flight occur. So that's an interesting um, situation. Of course, in these aircraft, there are plenty of seats for, for check airmen to ride along. So that is not really atypical. I think the FAA was trying to flag for everybody that a dual set of controls is necessary when training is going to happen on the aircraft. But it's pretty clear that this industry understands how to do really high quality training through simulation. And so I think that's what a lot of us are going to rely upon. And that was some of the feedback we all provided kind of unanimously to the FAA. And Mike, that really highlights how important simulator training will be in this segment. Fundamentally, when we look at that SFAR proposal, it doesn't fully recognize and embrace today's state of the art. We believe that we can provide safer training, we can provide better training, we can more thoroughly check out the pilot prior to a solo endorsement using simulators and the available technologies than if we were following a more conventional path of doing basic airmanship in the aircraft. We can look at contingencies. We can look at a full range of operating parameters to ensure that the pilot is fully capable of flying that airplane in a broader range of situations. This is the lesson that the military has learned. Back when they developed the F-35, they consciously chose not to develop a dual seat trainer aircraft recognizing even way back then that the simulator capability was more than up to the task to fully train the pilots, clear their pilots for first flight solos and, and all of that. So when we look at the, at the SFAR, we request that they look at that experience, they look at the technical capabilities that are associated with it and really bring the place in so that we can train pilots most effectively to a safer standard you also have to remember that the pilots we're talking about starting our operations with are already going to be commercial pilots before they enter into our cockpits. 
So there's a, a very high level of capability that those folks already possess. And we need to make sure that they're competent on aircraft. We can do that very effectively in the simulators. Why does the industry view adoption of performance-based regulatory criteria as so important for AAM, Mike? First and foremost, and I have some experience in the FAA writing rules, one of the things that you always are challenged with is what is the true safety objective of a prescriptive requirement? And we see that in this proposal from the FAA. We see fuel reserve requirements that are brought into bear that are prescriptive applying to an aircraft that is flying a 10, 15 mile, 10 minute mission, the same requirements that an aircraft flying transcontinental would be, would be flying for fuel reserves. So what are we trying to achieve for that requirement? We're not trying to necessarily achieve 30 minutes. We're trying to achieve that that aircraft can safely deviate to an alternate landing site that is appropriate for the aircraft and safely complete a flight. So when you start talking about that as a safety objective, it opens up the full range of possibilities of how you achieve that safety objective. And that goes for, for any safety performance requirement. We see that on the aircraft certification side. We see that on the operational side with a clear understanding of what we're trying to achieve, whether there are technology solutions, operational solutions, all of which come into play to further enhance safety in ways that a prescriptive requirement can't. To pile on a little bit of what, what Mike said, there's precedence for performance-based approaches uh, specific to the pilot training and certification aspects of life. Part 141, for example, provides a path for a reduced number of flight hours, et cetera, to obtain varying certificates and ratings. In fact, a lot of the well-established pilot schools uh, have programs or provisions in their in their certification that allows them to basically completely train to a performance requirement as opposed to a minimum number of flight hours. I think this is particularly of interest when we're talking about powered lift and the certification of these new pilots going forward. There are requirements for supervised operational experience, for example, that are called out in the SFAR. There's a number of 25 hours in there. I don't know whether that's the right number or not, but if we are training our crews to a, a specific performance standard, they can demonstrate proficiency to that standard. I think it does allow room for adjustment in terms of you know exactly what the experience and training requirements might ultimately be to get these individuals qualified to fly these aircraft. There's one point here, too, that I think needs to be considered. You know, we, we expect that the initial cadre of pilots is going to come from the existing pool of already certified uh, individuals, individuals who hold a commercial pilot certificate, likely with an instrument rating. The open question here is exactly how much experience do these individuals have when they come to us as potential employees or, or that, that initial cadre of pilots who are going to be flying passengers for compensation or higher. So when we train them and, you know, we use simulators to the extent that we can, and we all know the value of high-end simulation, we've all, we've all been through it. If you've been through a type rating program, you know that the first time you probably ever flown the aircraft was after you've completed all of your training and checking in a, in a level C or level D device. Well, this is 
kind of the same thing we're looking at here. Very performance specific in terms of what actions the trainee and nascent pilot has before they actually get out there and fly the aircraft. Great points, Paul. Greg? We're looking at an emerging industry, clearly for advanced air mobility. We're also entering the age of electric aircraft. So this is a pretty big deal. If you kind of put yourself at the beginning of the jet age, you would say, um, hey, there's going to be a lot of outgrowth here. And so trying to write very specific rules in the early days is difficult to do. And so the best possible thing you can do is kind of right size your rules for the future. And so by using performance-based requirements and then working with individual applicants or even the industry through standards, you can kind of set the intent for a whole range of new exciting activities. I think there's some great examples why if we were to set very specific rules based on the current applicants, you might set yourself up for difficulty in the future. Today, we're seeing electric aircraft that are moving four to five people an hour and a half or so at typical 200 mile an hour speeds. We're going to see faster, farther, more people being moved with electric aircraft. We're going to see hydrogen powered aircraft. We're going to see a whole gambit of things. An example of why applying an existing prescriptive rule might not be the best approach. You know, Mike was talking a minute ago about how the 30-minute VFR airplane fuel reserve might not be the smartest approach over the long term. Now, that rule, we can see the intent. It was to make sure that you had enough fuel as the pilot to plan for contingencies, unexpected issues that may come up and you have enough time and fuel on board to safely land. That was the the intent of that rule. By saying everyone has to carry 30 minutes in these aircraft, 30 minutes of cruise energy in these aircraft, that might not actually be the right approach. For example, electric aircraft, you know, maybe that 30 minutes in some aircraft doesn't allow for a safe landing. Well, we clearly want that to happen. So a a good performance-based rule would necessitate, hey, you need to have enough energy on board to assure that you'll have a safe landing outcome on the flight, including unplanned contingencies. And so you can do that in a whole gamut of new ways. You can say, wow, you need to have several alternate locations. You need to be overflying alternate locations or be within range of a certain number. You need to have certain kind of weather minimums. There's a whole range of of ways to attain that level of safety and performance-based rules will let you get there. And you can imagine that kind of structure across every one of these operational rules will, will allow the flexibility. And one of the really important things to consider here We're in a bit of a race. We're in a space race. The U.S. and the FAA is currently leading the way. Like The FAA is doing an amazing job. But putting in place performance-based rules that we can flex into and continue to make sure the U.S. leads the next century of aerospace is critical. Greg, how else might the SFAR, as currently written, affect AAM operators and manufacturers? The U.S. aviation system is built on 100 years of heritage and a very clear understanding of what aviation safety looks like and what our expectations are. It's one of the most dynamic airspaces in the world. It's the most vibrant general aviation market in the world. And I think that is the foundation upon which this advanced air mobility industry will be built. And we're excited that the FAA is running at that. And we see Congress is supporting these pushes as well. Uh, The House and Senate are, are very excited about making sure the U.S. leads the way in the future. And so When we look at prescriptive requirements, such as you must have two sets of controls in a cockpit, that's not the right approach for the outcome we're looking for. You must have exactly a 30-minute fuel reserve on the aircraft, right? Long-term, that's not the right approach. I will say, you know, we talked about the flexibility of training. And interestingly, by applying a type rating, you're allowing pilots to get trained in each individual aircraft. And those type ratings can be built 
to match the vehicle. So it's a very flexible approach. Now, long-term, will there be standardization across this industry so that maybe we see a little bit higher level of standardization? Absolutely, but it's far too soon to do that at this point. So I think incentivizing the FAA to really take it as a priority that they get these rules in place and that these rules assure that the advanced air mobility industry meets a very similar operational construct as existing fixed wing and existing rotorcraft today is clearly the path forward. And I think we're all really excited to keep running together down that. Greg highlighted that the FAA intends to have the rule finalized by the end of 2024. And Joby and Archer are talking about our initial operations in 2025. So it's a very tight timeline. I think one of the things that concerns certainly us is the fact that while the FAA is in a rulemaking framework, and we saw this as they were developing the SFAR, they're very reluctant to engage on things that are viewed as a subject matter of, of the rulemaking. So when we're moving forward as companies and we're planning and developing simulators with our partners, we're developing training programs, we're developing our operational framework, our maintenance framework, it's very important for us that the FAA still engage us during the course of that development and not putting up a shield and saying, excuse, we can't do that. We can't engage because we're in what's called ex parte, which means a restricted communications period subject of a rulemaking. The work that we're talking about is fundamental to understanding, fundamental to the FAA, understanding our vehicle concepts, our operational practices, the simulator capabilities, and all those sorts of things. And likewise, for us to be able to fold FAA thinking into our processes, it's not what we're talking about. That engagement is not about compliance to an SFAR. It's about all the predicate once the rules are in place to going and doing the compliance findings. So it's important that we actually have that full exchange between now and the rule publication so that we're all in that good position to take full advantage of that rule when it does come out. So that is something I think that I know the industry associations have emphasized, but we as a company have also emphasized with the FAA. Thanks for that insight, Mike. Paul, what are your thoughts? The SFAR is intended to be a 10-year solution. I mean, it's called out that the, the expected duration of this, this rule was 10 years. From an industry perspective, we hope that the FAA realizes that we're all going to be on a very steep learning curve over this next decade. We're going to learn an awful lot about the capabilities of these, these vehicles, what they do well, what they don't do so well, what kind of changes to the airspace environment from an operational perspective need to be made. The data, I think, is going to come in fast and furious. I would hope that, again, from, from an industry concern standpoint, that the FAA would be open to making adjustments in the SFAR long before that 10-year expiration date. If they looked at the rule periodically, maybe once every 24 months, two years, three years, whatever, capturing the data that we've gathered and make appropriate adjustments in a timely manner, I think that will clearly serve the industry uh, very, very well. I was a, a longtime aviation guy, certainly very cognizant of the success of current aviation regulations, particularly as they pertain to operational issues, certainly pilot training. And I think, you know, as an industry, we can all agree, we don't want to do anything that would compromise safety in any way. We've got a public to serve. And certainly we don't want to convey any kind of a message that 
it's too hard for us to comply with the regulations that currently exist. I think there certainly is room for adjustment, and I think we will be able to justify that you know, after we begin flying. Once we get some systems into an entry into service situation, then we can move forward. As the clock counts down to the planned introduction of AAM vehicles in commercial service, be sure to keep track of the latest developments in this emerging industry through nbaa.org forward slash AAM. That includes updates on the work by NBAA's Emerging Technologies Committee and the NBAA AAM Roundtable. And that's the latest from the National Business Aviation Association. Remember, you can subscribe to all Flight Plan episodes at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts, including by asking your virtual assistant or connected device. Of course, you can also download Flight Plan directly from nbaa.org. I'm Rob Finfrock. Thanks for listening, and be sure to join us next time for a new episode of Flight Plan. Uh, 3500. Uh, we got him inside. We're slowing it back to 170.